0: listener production Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong, and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. In this episode, we explore motivation, what is the best way you can motivate your team and does it change if your team is overperforming or underperforming? Our guest is one of the most successful leaders of a sports team to ever take the field, the decorated former Wallabies captain, John Eels. John moved out of sport and into the business world, becoming the founder of The Metal Group, a business consultancy company specialising in leadership and organisational culture. Um, John, thank you so much for for joining the Future Women Leadership Series. I want to start by asking you, how much do you think your experience in sport went on to shape who you are as a corporate leader?
1: All our experiences as people go on to shape uh, who we are as leaders in whatever it is we're doing. Sport has a very particular uh, influence, I think, on people, however, and some very positive aspects and, and others are more more challenged in some ways, but, but I suppose from a, a positive level, it was that understanding of teamwork and what it takes to come together as a team. The, the, the understanding that you have in my case, in a rugby team, there's 15 players are on the field at any given point in time, but you are usually working with a larger squad and among that squad of people, you're going to have people that such a huge diversity of interests, uh, huge diversity of intelligences. Some will be really physically intelligent, some will be uh, intellectually intelligent. And you've got to bring that group of people together in, in a, often a short space of time and with very changing conditions and parameters around you uh, to be singularly focused on a goal. But, but I think one of the big differences is that in, in sport, it's very much led by emotion as well, and much more so than business.
0: So are you saying that you almost prefer the business experience because it's less emotional and more intellectually detail orientated?
1: I think taking emotion out of it, I'm, I'm not saying business is unemotional because it is and, and passion is important. Uh, I think in business, passion is often contained in the way it can express itself. Whereas in sport, yeah, you know, we live on that passion, we want that passion and we feed off it. But But sometimes it can lead to, you know, misguided outcomes, but I think it's, it's being able to create an environment where you harness that passion, where you use it for a a singular focus rather than having it dissipated and, and not being able to generate that, that real energy in a specific direction. I think in business, it's easier to use the passion, but divorce the harmful aspects of passion.
0: You are Australia's most successful rugby captain, so whatever you did in terms of harnessing passion was obviously uh, incredibly successful. A lot of really good players get made captain without leadership skills, and that's obviously um, a a bit of a, a trap for coaches giving the wrong person the leadership role. But you clearly had exceptional leadership skills. Did you feel like that you were sort of born pretty much with them? Or did you really have to work
1: on it? Uh, I definitely had to work on it. And I think what I mainly had to work on was getting the confidence to lead and just the confidence to be myself. And I remember speaking to someone, you know, I had a chat to a few of the former Wallaby captains. And when I was asked to captain the Wallabies, and remember there's, there's a couple of people I admire enormously in that group. And Andrew Slack was one. And Remember him just saying to me, mate, just be yourself. And it's one of those bits of advice that you can just take for granted. It can it can roll off the tongue and you think, well, of course I'm going to be myself. But when you think about it, it's actually one of the most challenging things to do because it means that you have to put yourself as yourself without a, without any veneer on the line. And so the decisions you make, the, the calls you make, um, the challenges you issue to different people, well, it's you doing it. It's not doing it through another persona. And I probably at the start was too little of myself and tried to be more of whether it be Alan Border, who I really admired as a cricket leader or or Nick Farr-Jones, who was a great example for me as a leader and and not enough of myself. And it wasn't until I started to get the confidence to be more myself. But I, but I think the other thing which I probably did do well from the start was I really had a huge amount of respect for my teammates around me and I knew where they were strong. And I knew where they were stronger than what than than myself. And so I had no hesitation, no fear in in using them as leaders uh in, in the areas where they were they were best, you know, where they could best help the team.
0: Would you then say that delegation is a core leadership skill and one
1: that you mastered? Uh delegation, absolutely, but not abdication. Uh like you you want to make sure that 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 people are involved and doing things where they're it's their best fit but you you've you've got to make sure that you're still on top of the situation you know the impact of what they're doing is having on the on the team is a positive impact
0: i am interested whether you ever felt the need to kind of work on leadership from a business and professional perspective. So did you go and do leadership courses or did you buy a bunch of books on best practice in leadership? Or did you know so much by virtue of the fact that you'd led big teams in big environments that you probably didn't really need to start again?
1: I I definitely am still learning an enormous amount, but I, I did a few things Number one, I've, I've always been a big reader and very curious about people and and what works from that perspective, why two people can be faced with the same set of circumstances and one really grow from that experience and one really sink from that experience. and to understand what makes a growth mindset and what and, and what makes a, a defeatist sort of mindset. And well, in, in the pursuit of my curiosity, one of the things I did is I wrote a couple of books and I researched very deeply and interviewed a whole lot of people initially from the world of sport. And it was called learning from legends where I interviewed a lot of sporting leaders, but touching on the business of sport as much as the high performance of sport. And the second one, I interviewed a whole lot of uh, business leaders and just the research and the writing for those books was fascinating for me because probably the business one was more fascinating from the perspective that Speaking to the sporting people, a lot of that was almost like looking back on experience that I'd had in life, um, that I'd been through, but then going through the sporting, going through the, the business experience and I was in the midst of business and starting my own business and, and working as a consultant in other businesses and starting to sit on boards and being able to ask these legends of Australian business and, and global business, what were some of the lessons they learned? And I was able to ask them, uh, you know, not in the direct saying, I'm facing this issue at the moment, but saying, have you ever faced an issue like this? And getting live information about you know, tips on how you'd handle these things. So I think that for me was a great you know, learning experience. And I think you never stop really learning and you face situations and sometimes you think, "Oh, geez, I wish I, I didn't do that. But as long as you're aware of it, you can reflect on it. Uh, then you can learn from it.
0: Did you have mentors outside of the team and beyond the sporting world? And if so, who were they? Yeah,
1: for me, it was really important to have a lot of mentors outside the sporting environment. There's a guy called Terry Jackman, who's still a great friend today. And Terry was, I think, one of the largest independent cinema owners in the country. He'd run Hoyts or Birch, Carroll and Coyle. I forget which one it was or both or whatever through his time, but he was a, he was a great friend. But someone who could really challenge me and would you know be just as quick to say look i really don't agree with what you're doing have you thought about this yeah he was one and of course family close friends who you knew you could be really honest with and say i'm struggling with this what would you do in this situation and it really you know really helped me at at different stage of my career and you know still to this day some of those people are the great friends or still great mentors but i think mentors are really important to have within your environment and also outside your your environment to to challenge not necessarily change the way you think about things but to challenge the way you think about things
0: Have you used them uh, as you've transitioned out of a sporting career into a business career
1: Yeah absolutely uh, a, a lot of them and and they they do tend to some remain constant but others change
0: what type of leadership style do you gravitate towards?
1: It's hard to define types, I think. But, but if you looked at some of the, the qualities that make up certain leaders, I, I think when you see someone has this wonderful combination of confidence and humility, I think that's really important. And, and it's not in everyone, but where they, they're confident enough to make a decision, they've been really successful in their time, but they're very humble. They they know where good fortune has has played as much a a part to their success as as um, as good judgment. I think for me that's yeah that's probably the essence of it. And and you want you want to be with someone you want to be led by people that are bright. But there's different forms of intelligence. Mm. You know in sport there's a there's a physical intelligence about what people do. Some people. They don't know what they're doing necessarily. They don't know why they're doing it sometimes, but they've just got that ability to make the right physical decisions in the and the at the at the right times so that make them brilliant at what they do. And then when you get to business, you have some people that are incredibly emotionally intelligent, some people that are incredibly bright, um, and the people that can combine not necessarily at the extremes of those intelligences, but they can combine enough intelligence from each of those different areas um, I think they're the ones that you really gravitate to very much as a leader.
0: You've done a double degree in psychology as well. Am I, is that correct?
1: Yeah, I did a double major in psych and an arts degree. Yeah.
0: Yeah, So when things are going bad, you've got a team or a group of people that are not in, um, not performing well. How do you motivate a team to come back together and get the results that you demand of them?
1: The first thing is that you need to be able to give them some direction and and that can be the hardest thing because sometimes you can be in a a world where there's no obvious direction to be you know to step forward to and I I think in many respects it's it's a lot easier in a sporting team in that environment than it is in, in a larger business where you know in sport you can see where your opposition's coming from you know the game is played under a set of rules you know what to expect you know the time frames you know the you know the outcomes how you're going to score in business you don't always know how to score the goalposts can change in business to use the sporting analogy quite quickly the rules can change you you can be leading in an organization that has fifteen thousand people instead of 15 people that brings with it complexity so how do you bring all those people along that journey I think it's, uh, it it is much more complex in the, in the business world from that perspective.
0: I've just watched the uh, incredible series, The Test uh, on the Australian Mm. cricket team, and this is a subplot, but the different leadership styles of someone like Darren Lehman and Justin Langer, is it possible that different leadership styles just suit different eras? And is that potentially the case right now?
1: Look, without speaking specifically about, about those two, but I've watched the test as well and loved it. There is no doubt that different leadership styles are more suited to different, different circumstances. Yeah, sometimes you, you do need someone who's just going to get in there and make quicker decisions and be brash about how they're going to do it just to get through whatever it is that you're facing in that period of time. Yeah, it also depends on the people that you're leading and, and what they will respond to. Um, the environment that you're leading in. But I think it's also some leadership styles will have the ability to be more sustainably successful. So some leadership styles might have the ability to lead over a longer period of time than others. So someone who might be more bombastic and single-minded in their approach might be exactly what's needed, but may not be the best people to you know, to lead an organisation for 10 years. They may be the right ones to lead it for one year, to get it to a certain point in time. But then to bring people along a journey over the next, the next period and then the next period, again, it might require a different set of skills.
0: That's a good point to segue. Um, many of our audience will be women uh, and young women looking for leadership advice. And I think... Um, someone like you is uniquely placed to offer advice. I know you've got three daughters and uh, you do sit on many boards. Can you, can you share with me any insights you might have in seeing what it's like to be uh, a woman in a, a leadership position where they're still outnumbered quite a lot by men and uh, perhaps any advice you might have for our listeners about how to conduct themselves or, or pursue those sorts of upper echelon roles in corporate life?
1: At the moment, in the world we live in, at the moment, better situation than what it was five years ago, and ten years ago, and twenty years ago. And the reason it's a better situation is that, call it conscious bias, unconscious bias. I think at times it, it, it has been both. But I think there's been times in the past where merit hasn't been used as a basis for selection, and and that has gone against against women in in the workplace. I think nowadays merit is being used more as, as a basis. So the, the, the best advice I could give is to really work hard on your merit base for any selection and any role that you, you're, you're aspiring for. Um, be proud and, and uh, be proud to talk about what your skills are and why you'd be great in a role. Because I, I've definitely seen situations and in the various organisations I've worked in where people have sought uh, women to fill certain roles in the organisation and they haven't had female candidates actually step up to to want to take those positions for various reasons and can all be reasonable reasons at the time. So I think creating an environment where people, number one, where females want to step up and, and actually put themselves up for those positions is so important. So that's partly the organization's responsibility, but also for for women to really feel confident in the skill sets that they develop and and to be confident that, that those skill sets are going to put them up against anyone else that they're up against for that role, be they a, a male or a female.
0: So uh, the old adage that Men only ever need to feel thirty percent of the skill set to think that they can take on the job, and women need to think they've got one hundred and ten percent of the skill set before they put their hand up for the job. That's the thing that you've seen firsthand.
1: Yeah, look, it's a, it's a, it's a generalisation, but I have seen that. Look, men are not alone in doing that. You, you do see women do that as well, but but I think it probably is a generalisation that has been relevant in the past, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, and I think it's getting better. It would be also yeah. also an observation you can make. You and I talked uh, in the past about your work for an um, all-girls school in Sydney and you're sitting on a committee associated with that and the challenges that you see are for a, an all-girls school versus potentially the challenges you would have seen for all-boys school and boys sports clubs. Can you talk a little bit about... Uh, what you've seen and how frustrating that's been to uh, to witness.
1: Yeah, a number of years ago, I got involved with the the capital campaign committee at our, our daughter's school, and it's fundraising for for girls' schools was definitely more difficult than fundraising for boys' schools. And people would say might say, well, that's a generalisation, but one of the statistics I read uh, was talking about it looked at the top ten fundraising schools in Australia. Out a success that they'd had in the last 12 months. And nine of those top 10 were boys' schools and one was a girls' school. And that's a, st- a statistic that just should not be the case. And then anecdotally, you'd have situations where you know, people say, oh, they have three daughters and a son and they say, oh, look, no, I'm not gonna give here. I've just given to my son's school or, or they give to their own school before they give to their daughter's school. And look, it's people's own choice. It's their money, it's their choice. But you just wanted to, one of my goals was to make sure that that people were aware that the, the daughter's schools, that their daughter's schools were just as worthy of their consideration for funding as were their old schools or their their son's schools. And one of the things we looked at was, one of the reasons we uh, assessed was that there was this conscious or unconscious bias, was that the girls' schools weren't as connected to their old girls' I should say ex-students network sounds better than old girls network, (laughs) but they weren't as connected as the boys' schools were. And look, I did various things in my career, which might make me not the best example of connection or lack of connection with a school, but there would be two, three or four connections I would have with my school every year. And in a, in a poll chatting to a few people like my wife or, or other friends, who had been to been educated at, at all girls schools is they actually mostly had zero connections with their school, the school, neither reaching out to them nor them reaching out to their school. And so we set about looking at what are ways we can connect girls with their schools uh, across generations, rather than just while that, why they're at the school. So we started to set up things like whether it be a mentoring facility where parents, friends, ex-students of the school could look to mentor girls that not only had just were about to leave school but girls who maybe were a couple of years out of school to set up those networks which would connect them back to the school to set up career nights where parents and and friends of the school again would run career nights where current students but also ex-students could come back to the school or go to those organizations and realize that oh, okay yeah this school connection is really valuable for me. And it can't be the only connection in their life, but it can be a connection in their life. And so part of it to come back to it was saying, yes, there's a problem here. And yes, society does go against uh, the girls' schools in this regard, but okay, how can the girls' schools help solve this problem? And we ended up being quite successful in our campaign. And I think a lot of it was for the connection that we started to develop. And and the success of the campaign to me was not just, you know, can we build this building now? The success to me has to be, well, in ten years' time, is it going to is the school going to be more connected with their broader community, not just the community of parents and girls who are at the school at the moment?
0: So I think that leads to the very obvious point that connection is critical to uh, often success and um, pathways to careers that you know are fulfilling. It seems to me something that men have been very good at forever and it has been a challenge for girls and women both, you know, in that transition from school life, as you identify, but also in business life where they don't have the connections to pick up the phone and say, hey, can you help out with? And there are multiple reasons, as you would be aware, for that problem. But it's super important that um, men have a role in helping combat that structural difficulty that women have. Do you see men like yourself discussing these challenges and engaged in these topics? Uh, and do you feel that there is change on the horizon?
1: I think that in in uh, good-minded and fair-minded businesses, there's a mindset where they want to get the best people working for them. And, and they want to, I come back to that, this topic about merit, that they're actually hiring people for merit. They're, they're advancing people for merit in the organization. And if, you, if you've got that mindset as one of your core focuses, then, then you will be having those sorts of conversations about how do, you, how do we ensure that the best people want to come and work with us.
0: How do you see? um, Have you seen any difference, good or bad, in the styles of female leaders, or can you not generalise?
1: Look, uh, I've I've seen a lot of good and bad in in male and female. I think it's, I think it's hard to generalise on that point. I think there's good leaders and there's bad leaders. Yeah, rather than specifically saying female leaders lead like this, male leaders lead like that, because I've seen some of the most wonderful, sensitive male leaders. Uh, in operation. And I've seen some really tough and smart, you know, tough decision-making female leaders and, and they've both got, you know, great merit, but it's, to me, it hasn't been divided on male and female.
0: So when do you think we're going to see 50% representation of um, female CEOs?
1: It's hard. It's a hard one actually. And we're obviously a long way off that, but the start of that needs to be merit-based selection.
0: I think that's an excellent note to end on. John Eels. you're an inspirational leader, a great Australian, and uh, it's been just a joy to talk to you and thank you for coming on the uh, Future Women Leadership Series.
1: Thanks very much, Helen. It was great to have a chat.
0: The Future Women Leadership Series was presented by Helen McCabe. Executive Producer, Jenny Goggin. Sound Production by Darcy Thompson.